this is Tamson Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamson and Dan, read the paper on Sunday, March 1st. Rabbit, rabbit. Yes, rabbit, rabbit. Uh, 2020. Okay. The beginning of a new month. Um, yeah. And uh, Beautiful day today. Yes, beautiful day today. Of course, I'm exhausted. Yes, because you were teaching. You were yes, uh, meeting yeah. with your class at the Princeton Museum, showing them the treasures that, that are there. And uh, how'd that go? I'm fine, but it's, you know, I talked for a long time. All right, so, I'm going to... So do... I'm pooped, so you, you, you will have to bear the burden. As uh, is not unusual, as one does. Uh, so in any event, uh, so taking that responsibility seriously, I will begin by describing our first outing this week, which was uh, the theater, the theater. On Thursday, uh, we went to a production of 72 Miles to Go, a roundabout theater company show at the Pell's um, Auditorium. And uh, 72 Miles to Go is a play by Hilary Bettis. Uh, and uh, it's kind of a, well, it is a serious play uh, about a family uh, which is separated almost the entire play because while the uh, majority of the family is living, the uh, two sons and a daughter and the husband are living in Arizona, the uh, mother is separated from them because she is in Mexico because of immigration issues. Uh, the story is that uh, she met the uh, her husband trying to escape from Mexico into the U.S. and enter the U.S. illegally. Uh, she had a son with her at the time. They had two ch- additional children. Uh, then she was discovered by the authorities and sent back to Mexico. And uh, the story unfolds from there. Uh, and different things happen that make it, it identify really and describe and elaborate on the challenges met by a family of that sort. And it's a sad story. Fair right. enough. Right. Um, but it's not immigration and the dif- difficulties of uh, immigration is sort of the framework. But mm-hmm. the real story is about family relationships, wouldn't you say? Yeah, well, it's it's about family relationships set against that background. I mean, yeah, it's, it, yeah. It, she's you know, no, she's, but it's not like you go in there and uh, you're just looking for a resolution or you're just no. But it's there are kind of, the conversations that go on are among the five main characters include four people live on stage and one on the telephone, and that's her in Mexico. Um, so it's always there. Uh, look, it, it's. Uh, we liked it. I think you liked it even more than I did, frankly. I mean, yeah, I, I, I was thoroughly engaged. Okay. And I didn't find it overwhelmingly political, even though it's a political issue. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I, 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 you know, it just, it, it wasn't uh, trying to be too didactic. Mm-hmm. It was just sort of telling the story of this family. Yeah. You know, everybody's got their story. This is their story. And uh, it was pretty heartrending. Um, but it also had just human touches, you know, all the things a family with, uh, you know, teenage young adult kids goes, goes through. through. Yeah. yeah, no, they're real people. Uh, they're real people. Social issues, school issues, job issues. Well, uh, yeah, I, I agree with that. Holiday issues. I agree with that. Uh, and uh, the uh, the cast, I thought, was, well, there were a couple of standouts. Uh, the standout to me was a fellow named Trini Sandoval, who plays the father. I thought he was... Tremendously effective. I mean, uh, easy to connect to. He just seemed to leap across the stage and and sort of draw you in. And 
and I think that helped uh, quite a bit. Uh, you know, I, it's hard to evaluate the cast otherwise. Uh, frankly, I thought a couple of parts were really underwritten. Or, mm-hmm. I thought it could have used about six months more in workshop, honestly. But um, on the political point, it's, yeah, I, I think you're a- absolutely right. And in part, it's a little less political because it's not like it's a screed about the existing administration and what ought to be done now. The entire play takes place during the Obama administration. It's, it says eight years from 2008 to 2016. So it's dealing with an immigration backdrop that's of long standing. And frankly, given the circumstances of this family, uh, it, it's almost hard to imagine uh, any law on the horizon that would change. And I don't want mm. to go into the circumstances precisely, but they are kind of a hard case. So it's, it's not like they're saying, oh, gee, the current administration is, is, is oppressive. That's not the point of the play, although I'm sure that's the way the Times will review it. I, the, the interesting thing, too, by total coincidence, this week in the paper, uh, just a couple days after we saw it, there were two articles about Mexican immigration. And they were actually very hopeful uh, from, if you're thinking about the plight of, of a family in, this, in these circumstances. And I'll tell you why. Uh, the first was that headline, Mexicans lead exodus of undocumented immigrants from the U.S. And the point of it there is that there has been a real improvement in the Mexican economy, such that a lot of Mexicans who were undocumented who came into the U.S. are leaving the U.S. and going back to Mexico because mm-hmm. of the economic opportunity there. Uh-huh. Um, and they actually show uh, a picture of a woman who employed undocumented Mexicans who was chagrined by losing her best workers. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's point one. And point two is, headline just above it, we are desperate for more immigrants, a top Trump aide says. And you say to yourself, well, let me read that again. And it's Mick Mulvaney who goes on. He says, we are desperate, desperate for more immigrants, for more people. And the article talks about how much immigrants add to the American economy. Now, there is a classic case of what I'll call lower wage immigrants. They talk about uh, mushroom picking in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And they say that that's hard physical work, but it's, it pays actually quite well. And they can't find uh, enough American workers who are willing to engage in that kind of work and make real money. Uh, and they've been, a lot of the crop has gone unpicked, apparently. That's oh, how wow. desperate they are. But it also is in what I'll call higher wage situations. Mm-hmm. They say what fuels the economy in many ways is the influx of immigrants. And this is the, the Trump administration talking. So, so what am I, why am I talking about this? Because what's going to change the law and change the landscape is the, the uh, placing of value on the contributions of Mexicans, immigrants in, in the Mexican economy and the U.S. economy. Once that's established... Then the laws will change. Okay. Uh, so I thought that was all very hopeful. In any event, so I would say, I mean, you enjoyed it. I, I, I thought it was worth seeing. So I, so we would recommend that. And that hasn't formally opened yet and hasn't been reviewed yet. And that's at Roundabout. Right. And then on uh, Saturday, uh, we went out again because that's the kind of folks we are. And we went to our very much uh, increasingly cherished uh, <laughs> Music no. Mountain Theater. Yes, local theater. Local theater. We had talked about that before, just a few in weeks ago. Lambertville, NJ. Right, and we saw a Christmas Carol there, sort of, uh, you know. A, and our eyes were opened. Right. It was a nice production of uh, a not very often performed musical version of Christmas Carol. And this was a little different because we went to see Into the Woods. Now, Into the Woods 
is a classic Sondheim musical, and it's pretty serious business. Uh, and uh, it's two hours and 45 minutes long. It is not uh, a light undertaking. Um, and I went in thinking, well, maybe they'll abridge it. Uh, how they can't possibly perform the whole thing. Maybe they'll cut out some songs. I don't know how they're going to do it. A lot of productions just cover the first act. That's right. right. Well, particularly student productions, and it you know because it's it's uh, quite complicated, and frankly, it's a lot of work to get up to speed to do that. Uh, they perform the whole thing, and uh, again, this is I don't know what the right term is: community theater, regional theater. It's hard to describe. It's really as much a school as much as anything else when you get on their website and they teach dance and they teach theater and the like, but the performers are adults. They're, they're, they're not uh, students in the sense of they're high school students. Um, and uh, they're talented. Oh, These yeah. people can really sing. There's yeah. no question. But above all else, they can really sing. But what's the miracle is that they can put together a production like this with, you know, creative sets, let's call it that way, <laughs> and, uh, and canned music. They obviously not only license uh, the play itself, but they license sort of a musical backdrop soundscape that they perform against but they do extremely well and i enjoyed it a great deal yes yes and we went with dixon and mark right we love to go uh, to uh, theater and stuff with dixon and mark um because a dixon is so enthusiastic yeah. and b mark always knows inside stuff hmm. um not as much as we hoped, but some. Oh, he so, came through later. He, he you know, identified like, a couple people in the yeah, cast. Well, as, he, you know, he knows a little bit of gossip right, and so on. Right. Anyway, it was um, it was fun. I like uh, the small town feel of it. Yeah. As well, and there was a lot of you know family cheering in the audience yeah. for certain characters, and then uh, and you know when you get there, the uh, you know. The artistic the director. Head, the artistic director. And she greets you. They call her the producing director, Ginny Brennan. Right. Um, you know, well, gives a little speech look, to the whole audience yes. and encourages uh, people to be well, let, let, involved. Well, let's give a sense of the scale of this. It's a nice little auditorium, and you know, it's very hard to estimate crowds. So, but I would say there, let's say there were seventy-five people there. Mm-hmm. So what they do is, and this to me is almost a miracle because again, I I don't want to lose this point. It it was good. Mm-hmm. Okay. Not only was it good, it was moving mm-hmm. at the end. Okay, mm-hmm. now look, part of what you're seeing is, you know, and now I'm increasingly convinced that Into the Woods is, is really a masterpiece. I mean, the, the, <laughs> the, the lyrics are unbelievably, right. they're brilliant. It's Sondheim, yeah, Sondheim. Yeah, but if, if you saw the movie, when I saw the movie, I didn't get it. But uh, it, it was really startling, and startling to me because they're getting, let's, let's say, and I'm estimating here, they're only going to perform it, we understand, for three weekends, okay? Mm-hmm. Let's say they average, and this is a fair estimate, might be high, might be low, 100 people in the audience every performance, let's say. And let's say every... Well, they're going to have more than that. All right, well, you make it higher. Yeah. I don't know. But the point is, they're doing five performances a weekend. Again, that's a little bit of a guess, but I think that's right. And if it's three weekends, and if it's 15 performances, let me use 100 just because the math is easy, but we'll call it... I don't that, think it's 100. What do you think it is? I think it's more than that. 150? 200. Tamsin, we had 75 people there. You can't average 200, right. okay? So call it... Uh, all right, move on. Okay, Here's my point. Eight. Here's the math, all right? If it's 100 people, it's 1,500 people see it in total, okay? Trust me, I did the math, all right? Now, maybe that's a little low, but here's my point. A Broadway theater holds 1,200 people, all right? So it is pretty close 
to doing all this work to perform it once, all right, if it was a Broadway house. That's how it, it seems crazy to me. It's all disproportionate. There's an enormous amount of work just to perform it to the equivalent of one or two Broadway performances. And, of course, the beneficiaries are people like you and me. So it's to me, it's amazing. And what's also further amazing is that they have this full schedule of 16 shows through the year. They're doing the last five years in a few weeks. They're doing Matilda, which is a, a big lift, I think. Noise is off. You know how big a cast that is in that farce and how it has to be timed, legally blonde. I'm not going to read all of them. But it's unbelievable right. to me. Okay. It's unbelievable. So what, I, what am I saying? I'm not saying everyone should come to Lambertville because that's too hard, much to do. But you know, look, look at what kind of uh, theaters you have in your area. I mean, to me, it's been eye-opening. Eye-opening. Right. Uh, okay. Go ahead. And thank you for doing the math. Yes. Lord knows I wasn't going to do it. No problem. All right, so um, so anyway, so we've been having fun, uh, you know, uh, seeing some plays and theater, and um, there's a lot. The New York Times, actually, the arts and leisure section of the New York Times this week was pretty much all about what's coming up. Yeah. It was kind of their spring preview uh, theater issue, and uh, there's a lot of stuff to look forward to. Um I know we're going to Caroline and Change yes. soon. Car- um, so Caroline and Change is a, a musical I've been sort of aware of, but not highly aware of. And it's written by a woman named Jean Tesori, who recently uh, did some research on, written a whole lot of things. I mean, she wrote Violet, she wrote uh, Shrek, she wrote uh, Thoroughly Modern Millie. Um, so, and I've heard good things about it. And the Times... Fun Home. Fun Home, right, which is which even is great. Yeah. more recent. Yeah, tremendously yeah. reviewed. Uh, and the Times has a special pre- spring preview section. It's one of those times, a Sunday uh, art section doesn't happen all the time, but filled with ads. So obviously this is like a big spring season uh, issue. And spring preview, they identify the things that they think that you'll want to see in here. And on Broadway, the one that jumped out at me is Caroline or Change, which is the story of a... A boy who grows up in a Jewish neighborhood in the 1960s, and he loses a parent, but he develops a relationship with, well, the maid, who's a black woman who has her own family, and the musical's supposed to be extremely good. Uh, didn't, wasn't, uh, didn't attract a big following when it was originally opened, but I'm sh- I have a feeling it's going to be great. Okay. What else? Uh, well, you have... Uh, you wanted- Well, also in that article, you, you noticed that uh, they mentioned Assassins. Oh, yes. So Assassins is... Um, Yes, so I don't mind talking about this because the Times has identified it as one of these uh, plays to keep an eye on in the spring. And it's a production of the Classic Stage Company, which I've mentioned I'm associated with. Uh, So I have a little inside dope on that. So that's Classic Stage has a little bit of relationship with Steve Sondheim. Steve Sondheim's turning 90. It's a big celebration uh, on the occasion of his 90th birthday to be doing Assassins. He's granted them uh, the rights to do it. Uh, They have a tremendous cast. Assassins being the story, of course, uh, an odd musical, uh, loosely Very odd. Th- uh, strung together about all the various ass- assassins or would-be assassins of American presidents. But it's a very interesting musical. And it has some big names. I'll just mention one, which is Steve Pasquale playing a main part. And, uh, you know, I've mentioned this to you. Well, I'm not sure. We've seen Steve Pasquale in one musical. Steve Pasquale, uh, who is in Rescue Me, among other things, uh, didn't sing. Um can really sing, mm-hmm. can really sing. Okay. Uh, and I think that's going to be 
uh, fantastic production. That opens April 2nd. I will tell you, again, this little inside scoop. That's a small theater. And that is a limited engagement. So it's going to be hard to get tickets. It's going to be hard, you know, without divulging too much. uh, In terms of being able to extend the limited engagement, there might be a little flexibility, but there's not a lot. So if you have interest in that, you you ought to get onto that website and watch that website because uh, that's going to be a hard ticket to get. Or contact somebody you know. You could. That's associated with classic stage. You could. That could help you. (laughs) That could help you. I'm looking forward to Blue. Okay. And uh, that's a play. That's that uh, play that's uh, going to be up at um, the Apollo. And I think it's opening in April right. April 27th. Yeah. No, you mentioned that before. Um, yeah. Yeah. Directed by Felicia Rashad. Leslie Uggams is in it. Um, and uh, it's the story of uh, a black middle class family. And uh, it's, it's kind of interesting. Um and again, has some music, wonderful um, singing. Okay. So I want to see that. Um, also, six. Yes, yeah, six. You've been you've been wearing me out with six. Although I think you're going to go with Sadie. You decided, didn't you? Yeah, but we've got to decide when to go because it's getting a lot of buzz. So you know, it'll be running for a long time. Probably by the time we decide to go, it'll be all sold no, out. No, 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 no. No, this is attracting huge. This young people. Want to see this, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. the young people. Yes. And anyway, so. Well, uh, they, I did read an article saying it's one of those musicals that is because the album's been on Spotify for a certain amount of time. There's a whole group of followers already that know the words to all the songs. Yes. So they're ready to go. Yes. Yeah. And it's the story of uh, the six wives of Henry VIII. And here, the, but the backstory of it is even more fun. It's written by two people who right now are 25 and 26 years old. Yeah. Okay. Toby Marlowe and Lucy Moss, when they were students at Cambridge, and just a couple years ago, they, um, I guess Toby Moss uh, was, Toby Marlowe, rather. Toby Marlowe, Lucy Moss. Toby got, um, I guess, assigned or elected to write something as a submission for his theater group at the Edinburgh uh, Fringe Festival. Yeah, I've heard of that. And so he um, put this together with Lucy Moss. It's a whole complicated story, you know, in a few minutes, basically. So it it was, there's a fun article in the New York Times just kind of detailing the whole process. Um, But it has taken off like wildfire. And I think would be really fun to see and it's a very much um you know kind of a, a contemporary take on these women. what was this thing about beyonce that i saw there was a reference to did you see that in the time well each um character there were a couple different references uh, to beyonce um first of all toby marlowe looks at beyonce as one of his mums as, I, I, as sort of a mother figure don't know what that means but uh, go ahead well, well it maybe an inspiration i don't know okay but uh each of the wives is more or less kind of based in some ways on some pop celebrity oh really yes oh okay well, that explains um, so that's it. the way they've kind of fleshed out yeah. their personalities so it's a, it's a combination of historical and kind of hysterical and uh, it's, uh, you know, looks like fun. Can I ask you this? Have you heard any of the music on uh, the Broadway station or anything else? I, You know what? I don't think I have. I heard a long interview yeah. with the writers oh, a okay. while ago. Right. And they were interesting. They were fun. 
Um, it's possible that during the interview they played some of the music and I just can't remember it. But, uh, you know, I really am interested. They, also, they even have uh, Hans uh, Holbein, the younger, the painter, you know, did the famous painting. He, he did a lot of, he, he was a court painter for okay. Henry VIII. Um, you would recognize his stuff. Oh, okay. um, but anyway, he's one of the characters because uh, they tell a funny story about uh, him uh, painting a portrait of one of the, the potential wives. Uh, so when you're dealing with uh, potential spouses at a distance, it was not uncommon to have an artist right. do a portrait and bring it to, um, you know, the king or the prince or whoever. Right. And supposedly um, Henry felt... Uh, on the basis of that portrait, he was quite attracted to her and was quite disappointed when he saw her oh, in really? the flesh. Oh, really? Yes. too bad. Um, hate when that happens. Hate when that happens. But, you know, I mean, that sort of relates to, um, don't you think, people's profile images today on social media? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Sure. Um, so... So, yes. that, so that really looks like fun. So there's a, and, well, well, and there's so, tons more. There's crazy stuff. Mrs. Doubtfire. Oh, I don't know about that. And other, you know. Yeah, and there's a lot of serious stuff coming out. Uh, Death of a Salesman with yeah, Nathan Lane and Laurie Metcalf. Death of a Salesman is a while. Before, okay, what's the other one oh, that Laurie Metcalf? Slow down. Slow down. Death of a Salesman is far in the future. Okay. Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf is what's coming out with Laurie Metcalf. Slow down. Slow okay. down. And no one wants to see that. Because that's a rough but deal. Rupert Everett is in it. I like Rupert Everett. I love Rupert Everett. Okay. okay. In my best friend's wedding. But this is going to be a little <laughs> bit different for Rupert Everett. Look, I, that's kind of a dour is it deal. Is Tracy Letts thing? The Minutes? Yeah, The Minutes. That the might be interesting. You know, well, he, he wrote August. Army Hammer's in it. He wrote, yeah. Were you a big Army Hammer fan all Who of a isn't? sudden? Who isn't? Most people, I think, are not. But, are you uh, kidding me? My point is about Tracy, Tracy Letts. He wrote August Osage County. Uh, and he's appeared in a lot of things. Most recently, we saw him in Ford versus Ferrari. Uh, and this is the first time he's ever appeared on Broadway in a play that he wrote. Okay. Which is kind of interesting. But anyway, that really? play... Yes. I find that hard to believe. It's in, it's in the New York Times, so you can't, mm-hmm. uh, you can't question mm-hmm. it. Um, so the, a lot of stuff coming down the pike. Yes, there is a lot of stuff coming down the pike. Um, More so than movies, I think. I think theater is really well, theater is, in a way. Well, movies has, you know, this is the age-old thing of movies less serious, less ambitious than they've been in the past because they go increasingly for the youth market. That's the same drill we've been talking about. Someone reminded me again, you know, something that we talked about. Uh, Harry, uh, my buddy at work, said to me, you know, I still can't get over the fact that what you guys said on the podcast that... Uh, the Graduate was like the number one picture in the country for some time because The Graduate was a serious movie or a mm-hmm. semi-serious movie. That kind of movie would never be number one in the country now. Right. It wouldn't be close. It would, everyone would be right. complaining why they're giving the Oscar to something that's the 25th in box office. So movies have changed. And, and maybe a lot of the, you know, material uh, shows for the small screen. Yeah, are they take, draining that's right. off a lot of great talent. Yes, that's probably true. And but then it gets you come full circle because how many movies now are become the subject of the new musicals on Broadway? So it's 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 back and forth, back and forth. Mrs. Doubtfire, right? So, um, all right, let's get to sports because that's what people really want to hear about. Um, the Mets. Uh, there's nothing to talk about really. The baseball season hasn't started except for one very interesting thing, which is the Mets fans uh, who are subtly subversive. 
have found a new way to express their dissatisfaction well, with the Mets crazy, management. Right? Well, they're going, they're going crazy. Right? Well, they're going crazy. Well, because well, for two reasons. One is there's been some frustration for some time for the Mets' uh, unwillingness to spend on free agents or even to keep their own talent. Uh, not that they're terrible, but they're like eighth in spending among the various teams. But of course, they're uh, first in terms of where they're located in terms of the size of the population. The Yankees are on to that. The Mets haven't figured that out. New York City, very big place. But in any event, uh, so there's no reason to be eighth, like behind Milwaukee. Um, that's point one. Point two is, well, they might not be behind Milwaukee, but they're in the neighborhood. Uh, and the second is that Mets fans are willing to cut them a break because they're about to be sold. To Steve Cohen, and that would be a new regime, and now that's been undone. Right. So that's patience is off. So and an article. Uh, they don't. Uh, do they have a coach now? Oh yeah, yeah. You know that Luis Rojas. Yeah, they have a manager. Oh okay. All yeah. right. We talked about that. Yes, I know. Okay, I know. But your, they, but they your were eyes some, were. There were some missteps. Your eyes were glazed over. But the fact of the matter is. No, I mean he has a nice family. He does. Yes, they lose. Yeah. My point is that. Uh, an article in Times about the fact that the Mets are ex- expressing their displeasure with the uh, parsimonious spending habits by sending the general manager of the Mets, Brody Von Wagenen, money on Venmo. There's a, there are fans who are actually saying, sending him to his Venmo account, saying, here's a dollar, here's a few cents, whatever, go sign a free agent. Right. And uh, <laughs> it's, it's like children sending their pennies to buy, to, to finance the Statue of Liberty. Yes. Um, here's everybody, we're all going to send in a little money so that the Mets can afford to get a b- better um, roster. Yes, right. And it's, it is funny. Uh, and it kind of, it's, it's effective because it, uh, it kind of cuts through the clutter. I mean, what fans are always sending emails that get ignored or Twitter right. messages or whatever. And they do interview Brody Van Wagenen. And uh, he says, uh, yeah, you know, uh, you're right. I mean, the Venmo thing is kind of different. And they said, well, have you spent the Venmo money? He says, the truth of the matter is, I don't know how to access Venmo. I don't know how to use Venmo, which is a little disappointing because he's sort of the high tech guy they hired who went to Stanford, and he he had, why he doesn't even know why he has a Venmo account, which he might want to look into, uh, because he's his money might all go away. But in any event, he does find it funny, and uh, thank goodness Brody has a sense of humor. Uh, and uh, he his funniest story about it, he said he does remember in particular somebody sent him money on Venmo. In connection with the incident, you may recall uh, last year the Mets had a very bad spell, lost the game because of bad relief pitching, and Brody Von Wagenen uh, went into the manager's office and actually threw a chair, and you know, uh, across the room or something, and it crashed or something mm-hmm. like that, and there was a little bit of a you know a dust up, right? Mm-hmm. The guy sends a uh, Venmo, a fan named Matthew Mackey sends a Venmo message with some money. To repair the broken chair, right? And so... So those Met fans, always ready to help. Yes. Yeah, so Van Wagenen said, look, let me clarify this. Uh, I don't think the chair broke. It may have been a little bit slowed, but it's still on a swivel. So uh, they didn't need that money. But uh, yeah, creative. That's the main right. point. The Mets are creative fans. All right. We had some obituaries uh, this week. You had, uh, You were going to talk about B. Smith, I think. Yes, B. Smith, model turned restaurateur and lifestyle guru, is dead at 70. So, the, you know, this is a sad story. Um, she uh, was uh, originally named Barbara Elaine Smith, and uh, 
here's what they say about her. Um, I think uh, if Barbara, if Martha Stewart and Oprah had a daughter, it would be B. Smith. Okay. Um, so she, well, she had a wonderful career. She did. She was a model. Um, she, you know, worked in restaurants, then had her own right. restaurants. Um, she had a television show. And you B. Know, Smith Martha in New York. kind of television but show we, giving we, you we've been home to B. advice. Smith. We've been to we B. had been to B. Smith's, yeah. And, um, and uh, so she really was, I, I've also heard her called the black Martha Stewart. And right. uh, yeah, they she say was, that. you know, very attractive, very down to earth. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, a, um, uh, a real personality right. in that uh, sort of home... Uh, I don't know what you would call it. Uh, home decor, home advice business, yeah, whatever yeah. you want to call it. Lifestyle. I think it's a okay. lifestyle Anyway, thing. sadly, um, uh, I guess about a little over 10 years ago, she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Right. And uh, so she has had a long fight, a long decline. And uh, um, she was cared for by her husband, Dan Gasby. And uh, the only thing strange here is that near the end, um, Dan Gatsby was getting a lot of grief because he had developed a, re- a relationship with another woman. And uh, th- that was just... Uh, so he actually made an announcement and said, look, this this is my life. This is what I'm doing. Um, and uh, I love my wife, but I can't let her take away my life right as well she probably and, couldn't and recognize he, you know i actually yeah. read some stuff at the time he announced this in 2018 yeah. and uh I, re- I had read some stuff where he said look you know she she doesn't know me you know we're basically you know i'm caring for her as you know almost like caring for an infant um it, it's just uh it's not like she's not there you know it's not like i'm Cheating on B. Smith. B. Smith is well. What's interesting to me, you know, I don't didn't know this backstory. You did. Uh, So when you read the obituary, it's kind of startling that they say that this is a guy who helped her in terms of uh, restaurants and even television, whatever. They're obviously very close. They show a book cover that they wrote together called "Before I Forget," uh, which they uh, look very close, and it's about the Alzheimer's. Actually, if you look closely, yeah, he looks he looks rather grim. Does he? Yeah. And she's, she's got sort of a this silly kind of smile. goofy smile, right? Um, almost a childlike smile, right? Um, no, it's, you so, know, I didn't see it that know, way. Yeah, but um, you're right. Uh, so, all this caretaking for a person suffering from Alzheimer's, dementia, whatever, is just such an exhausting, draining yeah. uh-huh. um, life. Killing, uh, it jumps out at you because they, they do mention in the obituary, and you say to yourself, "Why are they writing about this?" So um, anyway, sad. Uh, sad to hear yeah. that whole story. So uh, a fellow named uh, Michael Hertz died. They call him a visual master. Michael Hertz uh, uh, made his name by designing the subway map. Now we all see the subway map because we all are going someplace in the subway, and we're trying to figure out what stop to get to, what train to take. So we've all seen the subway map a thousand times. Um, 
and that's the one that he designed. But what's interesting is that some of us... Daniel, 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 what? you're so New York-centric. Uh, I am. Okay? I mean, we have listeners in Columbia. Okay. okay? The New York City the, subway anyway, map. It's kind of an iconic map and well, used heavily. Here's the question about iconic map. Yes. Uh, this map uh, was developed in 1979. In 1972, or during the period from 1972 to 79, a different map was in use. And that was the one that, that frankly, I remember quite well. Right. And it was more of, um, how you, would you, you describe it? You don't have it? to open up the page. Nobody can see it. Okay, okay? but you can Just see it. I want you to see tell it. Tell me what you want to say. The point is, this, this is in the Museum of Modern Art, the previous map, the one in 1972, and it's stylized. Uh, it's not as... Uh, accurate, slavishly accurate in terms of the geography, but it does communicate a lot of information about where the lines actually go. So he go. updated that yes. and made it more to scale, more yeah. realistic. And more more, more detailed. Yeah. More user-friendly. But I love the old subway map. Yeah, all right. So you're you're here to talk about how this person did a great thing. He passed away and you just don't care. I'm just saying I love the old subway map. Uh, yeah, but he, he, we don't bring up obits so we can hate on their I'm not hating him. It was a, he's you well are, recognized. You're saying you love the other one. Yeah, yeah he's uh, anyway. Michael Hertz. He's saluted across the industry and there is an industry of map makers who all recognize him as the master. Yeah, it's, it's considered a great accomplishment. To, do, to yeah. try to have something that's fairly accurate right. but, but usable at the same I'm time. I'm giving him his due. Uh, and finally, we uh, there was an obituary of a fellow named Clive Cussler, which is a colorful name. You which might also is call him an author. Yes, yes. And deep sea explorer. Yes, he was all that. So Clive Cussler was an, an author advertising and exec. deep sea explorer. That's exactly right. Uh, here's what the Times says: Mayan jungles, undersea kingdoms, ghost ships, evil forces out to destroy the world, beautiful women. Heroes modeled on himself, Mr. Cussler's vivid literary fantasies and his larger-than-life exploits swirled together for four decades, spinning off more than 85 books and locating almost as many shipwrecks. That's really something. So, uh, yeah. Did uh, he make money off the shipwrecks? Uh, I don't know. Not a whole lot. He actually established a nonprofit organization to manage the shipwrecks and finance the shipwreck investigations. But his books made money. He sold more than 100 million copies, and he amassed a fortune of $80 million. And this guy was, as you mentioned before, he was in advertising. He was an advertising executive. Right. And he decided to write these books, which were, they compare them to books by Ian Fleming, you know, James Bond books, or Tom Clancy, or Robert Ludlum. Well, they're adventure books. And I heard on the television that uh, when he first wanted to write adventure books... Publishers said they don't sell. Yeah. And that he had a hard time selling the first one. Yes. There's a story about how he did it by kind of fooling the agent into thinking he was bigger time than he actually was. But I'm sure, you know, people got comfortable with it because they were such huge sellers. And the best part about this story is that they all, all the stories circulate, I'm sorry, uh, revolved around a recurring hero named Dirk Pitt. I like that name. And his son was named Dirk, an undersea explorer who cheats death and saves the world as he foils the diabolical plots of megalomaniacal villains while satisfying his taste for exotic cars and lusty women. Same Uh, old, same old. The same old, same old. It's always what we're looking for in a guy. Yeah, well, he wrote this for years, and here's a great quote. He says, when we started out, he's talking about his, he and his character, Dirk. When we started out, Kessler said, we were both 36 years old. 
Now he's a little over 40, and I'm pushing 70. <laughs> well, it's, you know, you got to, yeah, hats that's, off. What can yeah, I say? That's a good hats thing about off. being an imaginary character. Yes. So uh, there was an article here. For those of us who have been in a workplace environment in which we're constantly getting advice about how to give feedback, feedback being the thing that's supposed to subordinates. Yes, to subordinates. All young people or all people moving up the ladder want, which I question, frankly. But in any event, that's that's what they say. And we, uh, we uh, I work for a large organization, a large law firm, who has brought in consultants and given us tons of advice about how to give feedback. And it never sounded right. And according to the Times' latest article, uh, uh, it's an article by Arianna Huffington, as a matter of fact, in Smarter Living. Uh, that kind of thinking is all wrong. Yeah, so traditionally you're supposed to do the sandwich. The sandwich, in which the way you give, well, again, assuming you have criticism to provide, which is always right. the case, honestly. Right. Uh, sandwich, you, it's positive, negative, positive. You say something nice about the person, you're the greatest at this. Then you say, you know, it would be a little bit better if you manage to do that better. And then you have another positive, but nobody does this like you. Okay. Right. All right. Then we had that for about five years. Then after about five years, someone came in and said, no, we have a breakthrough, different organization, different consulting group. Right. It's a no sandwich, no sandwich. You just say something positive at the beginning and then you give the direct negative feedback. Okay. It's not a sandwich or it's an open face sandwich. Okay. Okay. That was considered uh, groundbreaking. And uh, now they say, no, 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 no. Not the way to go. Skip the positive? Skip the positive completely <laughs> because when you say something positive and then negative to someone, they only take away the positive. Well, I can sort they of see only that. only remember I can it. see that. I can see, you know, listening to it and saying, well, you know, they said I should do this, but, you know, they seem to like what I'm really doing. So right. forget that. Yeah. You know? and, and then the mind works and it retains right. what it's comfortable right. retaining. Yeah. They say this seem to mostly like me. You so know, you just, have a few negative things, but mostly I'm doing good. So, okay, I'll stick with that. Give the constructive feedback and let it stand on its own. So there we go. Another advancement in workplace dynamics. I just wanted to get that out there because that's important. Um, so finally, you had what I think was a really interesting uh, article about a fellow named William James. I, you didn't say you thought it was interesting. I did after I read it, it a second time. I, right. I, when I first looked at it, I didn't see it. But when you pointed out to me the virtue of the article, I looked at it again and reconsidered. Well, this is in the Wall Street Journal by John Kaag, K-A-A-G. And it's entitled, William James, Yoga and the Secret of Happiness. And uh, it, it talks about, uh, you know, this guy talks about in his own life. He was going through some down times, and uh, he uh, uh, actually was reading uh, William James's book, Principles of Psychology, and got some hints about how to handle all this. And this is a book written like 100 years ago, Well, right? yeah, he was, uh, it was written, that book was actually written in 1890. Yeah. Okay. So he was, a, you know, they call him the father of American psychology. Right. And he was also a philosopher who's also the brother of Henry James, yeah. the author. Okay. And uh, what um, this guy decides is that um, according to William James's advice, yoga can solve all your problems. Right. Okay? I know that you had a few quotes from this uh, that you like. Basically, what it comes down to is uh, that uh, William James says, we don't laugh because we're happy. We're happy 
because we laugh. Yes, and that I okay. found indecipherable. Right. But what I found the broader principle, and frankly, I also found the guy's discussion of yoga pretty not interesting. But but the broader principle, which uh, is in the article, is that you have to lift yourself from your lethargy. Uh, and if you do that by physical activity, it changes the framework of everything you're doing. And in fact, that activity governs your mental state. Right. So he says, smooth your brow, brighten your eye. This is William James. Contract the dorsal rather than the ventral aspect of the frame. In other words, sit up straight. Yeah. Okay. And your heart must be frigid indeed, if not to generally thaw. Okay, and the author says here, he's telling us to act differently. Do something. Right. Even if it's the last thing we want to right. do. And then, right. If you do something, if you take a walk, if you do something physical, if you challenge yourself, even if it doesn't seem appealing, by using those actual physical muscles, you do actually change the way you think, which, which seems questionable. Uh, but but I think it's right. And, of course, the, the, order, the author's experience was that they were entirely right. This is a guy who's suffering from a second divorce and a second heart attack. And this is he right. finds the physical activity just changes his, mind, his frame of mind so completely. So it's not just about physical training. It's about emotional training. Yes. And one of his bits of advice, you were... Well, this is my favorite bit of advice. This yes. will tell you more about and me this, than anything again, else. This is from William James. All right. And, and so, you know... hundred years ago. The question is, how do you get yourself to do this? And here's the quote from James. Everybody should do at least two things each day that he hates to do just for practice. Well, there's getting up. <laughs> I mean, I love that quote. Yeah. I mean, words to live by. Okay. And what did as, you like? As James knew, actions do not always bring happiness, but there is no happiness without action. That's right. So get up off the couch. That's okay. what this says and uh, do something. Uh, all right. So that's uh, all we have this week. Uh, and this first day of March, this beautiful yep. day in March. And uh, we'll looking forward to many more adventures. So this is Dan Abuhoff and Tamson Granger with Dan and Tamson or Tamson and Dan, somebody <laughs> reading the paper. See you next week. Thanks.